Welcome to Deep in Scripture. We're uh, coming to the end of the of the summer, at least the heat. Uh, but I hope that you are joining us and in enjoying our discussions of Scripture together. Uh, my hope is that uh, this isn't merely Dr. Kenneth Howell and and myself uh, preaching at you, but that you've got a Bible open or at least got the planning sheet in front of you so that we can together listen to uh, the voice of our Lord speaking to us through sacred scripture. Uh, and we study scripture, of course, within the context of the teacher that our Lord gave us, and that's the church. Uh, Dr. Ken joins me every week. And uh, first of all, Ken, welcome to the program. Thank you, Marcus. Good to be with you. We're continuing our study of a Romans. So today we're going to pick up again where we left off last week. Uh, if, if you're just joining us, uh, and haven't heard a previous program, you can go to deepinscripture.com and listen to the previous programs. We'd love to hear from you also. And in a moment, we'll look at an email that we've received. But today, we're going to pick up in the, toward the end of chapter 2 of Romans. We're going to uh, look at verses chapter 2, 25 through chapter 3, verse 8. And uh, can a bit as an overview and preparation, uh, as I looked at these passages, it seems that uh, what we're dealing with here, as, uh, as last week we, we saw St. Paul begin uh, to address the, the two different groups that make up the, the Christian church at this stage in its development. You have convert Jews and convert Gentiles. The Jews, of course, come with their great heritage of salvation history and the scriptures and, and God uh, providing them with the law. And the Gentiles come from a variety of pagan sources. Uh, some of them have no knowledge of the Jewish history, but they come with them with philosophy and a, a variety of, of, of pagan, uh, as, as well as you might call pre-Gnostic ideas. Uh, and yet they're converts to the church. And one thing we all know, Ken, from the work we do with the Coming Home Network is that a person, uh, when they convert to the faith, when they convert to the church, they may all of a sudden now be a Christian, capital C, but that doesn't mean the baggage that they had mm. immediately disappears. We bring with us all the influences that have created who we are genetically uh, environmentally as well as this, the inner spirit that we are and the, and the things we've picked up along the way that shape our being and our thinking, that comes with us. And it's shaped by grace, but that doesn't mean all of a sudden we're, we're holy people. Uh, we've got a lot to work through. And so Paul's dealing with that in the letter. He's got the Jewish converts and they're bringing with them all their baggage and the Gentile converts bringing with them all their baggage. And in the middle of chapter 2, he's beginning to deal with both of them. His goal is to get them both humbly to live together as Christians. And that isn't easy. And so we dealt with last week with this idea of the, the Gentiles have this and the Jews have this and how you're going to live together. And one of the things that the Jews have, of course, is the law and the prophets and the Gentiles are without that. Um, does it make a difference whether you're circumcised or not? Behind this letter 
is a consul that already happened in Jerusalem that we see in Acts chapter 15, where the leaders of the church dealt with the issue of circumcision or not. And Ken, we can talk about that in a moment. But as an overview, it seems to me as I look at the patches we're looking at today, verses 25 through 2, deal with the question of the externals of our faith, whether we're baptized or not, circumcised or not, a member of the church or not, versus how we live that out and the difference it makes. And we'll look at that in a moment. And then when we move to verses 3 through 8, now we're dealing with the fact that whether our obedience in the church, in the faith, whether that obedience nullifies our relationship with God, whether it nullifies his faithfulness to us, his love for us. You mean if we don't believe? If we don't believe, we don't live it out. Does it nullify the church? If we look at a bad Jew, does that therefore mean Judaism was wrong? We look at a bad Christian, does that mean Christianity is wrong? And we'll look at that. And maybe, Ken, before we get to the email, why don't you jump in there and give a little bit of your own summary, especially how these verses connect with the wider context of what we're getting into in chapter 3. Well, this is a, it's a good summary, what you said there, because there's these two different issues. One is, you know, how, what is the meaning or does the, um, of the of circumcision in the Old Testament, of baptism in the New, and if a person doesn't live out the meaning of that circumcision or that baptism, does that nullify the meaning of it? And this directly relates to the question of the validity of the sacraments. Because people will say, well, I was baptized as an infant, and I, I was, I presume you were too as a Lutheran. I was baptized as a Presbyterian. And because I didn't live according to that baptism or according to the faith for uh, a number of years, did that mean that ba- that baptism was valuable? And the Catholic Church says, no. A lot of our Protestant evangelical brothers and sisters say, yes, so you have to be rebaptized, you have to be baptized again. I think what we're going to see in this passage is that Paul has, a, in a sense, a twofold answer. One, no, it doesn't nullify. It doesn't mean that the circumcision is is that it's invalid, but it but it does mean that the effects of it in your life are null and void. And then in that next passage, as you talked about, we're really going to get into the question here of the justice of God. And in chapter 3, where he deals with this question, where he says, like in verse 3, if they didn't believe, if they fell away, if they weren't faithful, does that nullify the faithfulness of God? Paul's going to return to that chapter, that same issue in chapter 9, when he asked the question, well, here's all this great gospel that we've received, but the Jews rejected it. Does that mean that they're rejected? And he turns that question into, does their rejection mean that God rejected them? And his answer to that is clearly no, it doesn't mean that. So Paul has some surprises for us here. Yeah, and and in case you're wondering whether these verses are just something that dealt with problems in the first century and they don't relate to our lives today, they 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 very much do because they deal with uh, how the church uh, has come to understand its ecumenical efforts to work towards unity in the church, understanding the church and the wider understanding of the church and how do we how do we reach out to non-Catholic Christians or how do we reach out to non-Christians? How do we understand them? Uh, these are very pertinent verses and they have throughout 
the ages. I know, Ken, you're working on the side on some translations of the writings of, of Cyprian. Mm-hmm, and right. Cyprian was caught up in the very issues that we're looking at in this passage. Yeah, exactly. Uh, it was a question of validity of baptism of those who'd fallen away. Yeah, exactly. you know, yeah, those that yeah. were, were brought before the, the emperor and were being required to deny the Christian faith, and some of them failed, as I might have and you might have can. Yeah. And so they failed, and they, they, you know, they, so they weren't persecuted. And then eventually they wanted to come back to the church, and the question is, well, do they need to be rebaptized? Or let's say that they right. bought into a heresy like Arianism or or right. uh, Manichaeism. Well, would they need to therefore be rebaptized when they came back to the church? And mm-hmm. that's a question that arises today whenever a, a non-Catholic Christian or a non-Christian wants to come into the faith, does their previous baptism uh, matter? So we'll get to that in a little bit. But we do have an email. And uh, we keep getting thrown these softballs, Ken. Uh, and I'm, I'm being <laughs> facetious here. This is a nice email. It comes from Fred. Um, and he says, Dear Marcus and Ken, recently you discussed Romans chapter 2, verse 3, which Paul writes, Do you suppose, O man, that when you judge those who do such things and yet do them yourself, you will escape the judgment of God? Jesus also warned against judging one another. Yet there are other verses that strongly encourage us to point out the flaws and sins of our brothers and sisters. What is our responsibility to judge fellow Christians? Sincerely, Fred. Well, as a matter of fact, I think coming up in, uh, I think it'll be next, a week from this weekend. So it will be the first Sunday in September the readings for the Mass are verses that call us to warn one another for our sinful behavior. Uh, The readings for the Mass begin with the readings from Ezekiel, where it's about a watchman whose responsibility is to warn the community about impending peril. And if the watchman does his job and warns the community, and then they say, so what, and they ignore, well then, he's done his job. He's done his responsibility. The people in the community are innocent. But if the watchman doesn't warn the people, he's guilty for not warning. And the church has linked that passage with the passage in Matthew 16 about um, if your brother has a problem with you, sinned against you, you go to him. Mm-hmm. If he if he doesn't mm-hmm. listen, you bring someone else. If he doesn't listen, you bring in the church. And then if the church doesn't listen, or if he doesn't listen to the church, then he's cast out. And it's that context of when two or more agree and are right. gathered in my name, that whole context. But the, the overall context is that we have a responsibility. Like, mm-hmm. Ken, if I see you as my brother in Christ, and I see that you're doing something that particularly is mortal— a mortal sin, mm-hmm. that what is my responsibility to, as a brother, to warn you? And if I don't warn you, then to what extent am I culpable for not warning yeah. you? I mean, that's the call of us as brothers and sisters in the Lord to be responsible one to another. So what do you think about this email? Well, it's it's a great question, and it shows to me the 
the importance of balance in looking at the scriptures. You know, it's amazing how many different views you get from the Bible because people have overemphasis on one thing rather than another. For example, the passage that the uh, the um, questioner alluded to in, in Matthew chapter 7, do not judge that you may not be judged. For in the measure that you judge, it, you will be judged. It will be measured out to you in the measure that you judge others. And so people take a verse like that, and then they'll say, well, you see, we shouldn't make any judgments about other people's lives. In fact, I've had a friend who recently, uh, in the last few years, went through a very uh, painful divorce. And um, his his wife um, went to this other church, and so he went to talk to the pastor of that church and said, you know, she doesn't have legitimate grounds for what she did. You know, this, this it was an immoral action. And the pastor said, well, you know, Jesus said, don't judge, that you may not be judged. So he's invoking Jesus here and justification for not talking to this woman and what she's done. You know, but in the passage that you referred to in Matthew 18, it says, if your brother sins against you, go rebuke him just between the two of you. And uh, if he hears you, you've gained your brother. But if he doesn't hear you, then take along two or three. So give stages here. Then you take along two or three as a witness. And then if he even refuses to listen to them, then you take it to the whole church. Now, it's really important here to to emphasize two things. The word judge, both in English and in ancient Greek and a lot of languages, has a little bit of ambiguity in it. Judge can mean condemn, right? In other words, I'm judging you, I'm condemning you for something that you're doing. This is the meaning that Paul has in Romans chapter 2, verse 3. He says, do you think you're going to escape the judgment of God if you do the same things that you're judging others for? All right. In other words, he's saying you're condemning these Gentiles for all this uh, immoral behavior, but you do the same thing yourself. How can you escape the judgment of God? Um, but notice there's a slight difference between judging a person negatively and saying that's wrong versus the judgment of saying this is right or that is wrong. Let me give you an example. So Johnny brings home his math home uh, back to the teacher, and it says 2 plus 2 equals 5. Now the teacher has to make a judgment, right? It's not a condemnation of the person, of Johnny. It's simply saying that is that thing is wrong. And that's the distinction that we have to make here. Is the action that the person has done wrong, regardless of whether who did it or whatever? Um, it but seems there's also to me, another... Uh, well, I'm sorry, I was going to add, just right along with what you just said there, if I could. Uh, it seems that the attitude... The difference is whether you're judging from above or from beside. Oh, yeah, that's a good way of putting it. Yeah, yeah. Because what you're saying is, and Paul says this in Galatians, right? When you go to your brother, you you say, you know, I have the same faults that you have. You know, I have the same weaknesses, or maybe I have different weaknesses, but they're just as severe as yours, you know. Right. And I'm here not to judge and condemn and as it were throw you into the pit of hell I'm here to help you change to, to, to live what what's better um, you know in another point that you you your point kind of pointing toward there remember that Jesus said in verse 15 of Matthew 18 if your brother sins against you in other words 
we have to discern when it's proper and good to go and talk to our brother. First of all, has the brother sinned against me? In other words, am I personally involved in the situation? Well, if I'm personally involved, then I've got more reason to go than if I than if I don't. But maybe the second thing by extension is, am I seeing something in my brother or my sister that's hurting another person, a third party here? And for example, a, a husband, let's take an obvious example, a Christian husband, they go to church, they love the Lord, uh, but but he's got a bad problem of anger and he beats his wife. Well... I think I got a responsibility to talk to him, even <laughs> though I'm not directly involved, right? So that's 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 part of those are some of the guidelines. And then there's always the matter of prayer. You know, Lord, should I should I talk to this person about this particular thing? The other question too is the practical matter of well, does it is it going to make a difference? Now, sometimes we, in extreme cases, we may have to do it even if it, we don't think it's going to make much of a difference. But for example. If I'm talking to a young man versus I'm talking to a man who's 90 years old, the 90-year-old man is not likely to change. <laughs> doesn't have much opportunity to change. But the 19-year-old might. So do I have a, do I have a possibility of success here in this? So, I mean, these are some of the things. But you're absolutely right, Marcus, that we, we have to make this distinction, right, between judgment from above versus judgment about the rightness or wrongness from beside. I've heard it said, Ken, that uh, the first section of John chapter 8 where the, the leaders brought the woman to Jesus caught in adultery and they, they asked what they should do and Jesus said he was out sin cast the first stone and then they all walked away. And I've, I've been told that one of the reasons that that section of John isn't in all the earliest manuscripts and so many biblical scholars question whether it was in the original manuscript of John or whether it was added later or whether it was taken out or whether it was a separate thing Mm -hmm. that I've heard it said that one of the reasons was that the early church struggled with the very issue we're talking about it seemed that Jesus was being in that passage um, too flippant about sin and judgment of sin and that mm-hmm. the and and during a time when they're bringing gentile christians into the church who are being called to to set aside their sin mm-hmm. that the the, pa- the passage could be interpreted to imply that the leaders of the church didn't have the authority or didn't have the right to cast judgment on other members mm-hmm. of course we saw that happening in acts when you know Ananias yeah, right. and Sapphira came forward and had lied, and then were judged by that by the leaders of the church. So, it was it, some scholars I've seen felt that the early church was uncomfortable with that passage in John eight, mm-hmm. and so therefore some kind of set it aside from the scriptures, and we ended up with copies of John. But I, I, I think this really applies today in in the issue of why today here we are in the twenty first century in a culture that has a very strong um, agenda, uh, if you would, um, um, what do you call it, Ken, when you have people pressing uh, politicians? What's, a, what's that called? Uh, groups of people 
pressing politicians to believe a certain way. What's uh, the words skipping my mind right now? Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. It's, uh, uh, but we have this lobby, lobby is the word I'm looking for, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, in our culture for lifestyles that yeah. 80 years ago would never even been dreamed of being accepted in our culture. Yeah. Paul wrote yeah. against them in early part of Romans. But to me, I wonder if part of the problem is that there were opportunities in the last hundred years when Christians should have spoken out against mm-hmm. certain lifestyles, but we didn't. We let it pass. Mm-hmm. We weren't mm-hmm. faithful watchmen. And so we listened to verses like, you know, don't judge lest you be judged. And so we let these people go. And now the cat is out of the bag to the extent where how will we ever by grace of God, mm-hmm. reclaim the morality, even the morality we had in our culture just a hundred years ago, when we've gone yeah. so far in the other direction. Yeah, no, that's that's really true. The uh, and you're right. I mean, that when the church doesn't stay faithful, and of course, part of the problem is that so many in Christian have in, in in fact rejected many of the central moral teachings of the church and christians are always in danger of conformity with the world that is around them because they grow up in that world they adopt that world and then they find creative ways of redefining what's in the bible this is why it's so important to read scripture in the light of the past the light of the church the way that it's been done throughout history so that you don't depart from these fundamentals because sometimes it's hard to tell where's the where's the fundamental and where's the where's the line between what's core and fundamental and what's on the periphery but the catholic answer to that is that it's the church that determines that it's not me as an individual it's not it's not a particular bad bishop or diocese it's the whole church that determines that and uh in the church in in the church doing it just make sure a non-catholic listening wonders well what are you guys saying The church doesn't believe that on any given moment as we progress through history, when a new thing comes up, the church just sits on its throne and declares this is what's true Um, uh, and decide. No, no. No, the church has accepted from the beginning, coming from our Lord and the apostles, the preservation of the deposit of faith, the passing of that along, the preserving of it. and so as cultures change, peoples change, pressures, you read history and it's just amazing the church is still around. It's, and it's mostly because of the, of the, the popes that have, have kept the faith alive uh, in very difficult times uh, that they were carrying out judgment, not condemnation, but helping people understand this is how we are called to live. And helping yeah, people so see much. that in ways that they've used self-interpretation to go into other areas, the church's responsibility is to call them home, call them back. Mm-hmm. And uh, Almost all the judgments that the church makes about moral issues or about uh, doctrinal issues, <clears throat> it's usually not, my, my impression, not impression, my considered opinion after many years of study, is very clear that the church doesn't isn't a rigid organization. It leaves all kinds of flexibility 
in in terms of things. But what it does is it does set boundaries. And that sets boundaries in accord with both Scripture, with what we have in the history of the church and is in tradition, and in accord with the natural world. And that's where we see that in this most recent matter of marriage. So what constitutes marriage, it's based upon the natural order that God has placed. By the way, our our reader, our hearers ought to, uh, there's a wonderful uh, two lectures of this uh, by Archbishop uh, Chaput, uh, Charles Chaput, the Archbishop of uh, Philadelphia, has given two wonderful lectures about this. And they, uh, they, if they just Google in, they'll be able to find them. But it's about this matter of the moral climate in which we're living. And I think, my judgment is, that the time is coming when we're going to we have to be a little bit more explicit about what's morally right and wrong in a culture that seems to be deteriorating around us. Yeah, even when the Catholic consuls would declare anathema on a particular doctrine that was that that Christians were were uh, accepting and then being drawn away from the center of the faith the anathema was not a judgment from above was a declaration of what the mm-hmm. people had done to themselves that's true yeah, yeah you know yeah. telling the people where following this way had taken them well, like, it's like an excommunication. It's the purpose is to call them back to the truth, call them back into the communion of the church. Right. And, and behind that is what we're looking at here. We're going to take a break in, in just a minute, Ken. We've used the whole half of the program to deal with an email, but I think it was a, a good introduction to what we're going to look at because we're going to look at this issue as we see t- two groups of Christians, one Jewish Christians, one Gentile Christians with two different backgrounds. And the question is, does the the circumcision, you know, does that uh, make a difference or not uh, to someone's uh, faith? And uh, you have these early Christians arguing that. Even, mm-hmm. I'm guessing, Ken, that there were, you know, humble, Gentile, former pagan Christians that in their heart wondered whether they needed to be circumcised or not do they trust the leaders you know do they yeah or am i you know or you know the faith isn't working for me is it because i wasn't circumcised yeah exactly you know and that applies to today people that faith isn't working for them so what's missing in my life well maybe i gotta go do this maybe that's the solution we'll come back to that in a little bit right after the break Hello, I'm Marcus Grodi, the host of this program, and I'd like to tell you about my newest book, What Must I Do to Be Saved? A growing number of Christians today believe that all that is necessary for salvation is an individual's faith in Jesus. Churches everywhere proclaim this Jesus and me theology based upon a simple interpretation of John 3.16. They diminish the need for rituals, sacraments, creeds, or even membership in any particular church. But is this true? In this book, I examine how salvation has always come by being a faithful individual in the family of God, the church. For information, please go to chresources.com or call 740-450-1175. Thank you.
Don't forget to watch the Journey Home program with Marcus Grodi on EWTN. Each week, Marcus meets new guests who have journeyed to the Catholic faith from many backgrounds. Be challenged and encouraged as they witness to how their love for the truth of Jesus Christ has brought them into full communion with the Catholic Church. That's the Journey Home program on EWTN, live on Monday evenings at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. Deep in Scripture is brought to you by the Coming Home Network International. We are a network of inquirers, converts, as well as lifelong Catholics helping one another grow closer to Jesus Christ. On our website, you'll find conversion stories, articles, and videos, as well as information about becoming a member and receiving our CH newsletter. Visit chnetwork.org or connect with us on Facebook or Twitter. Welcome back to Deep in Scripture. I'm Marcus Grodi, your host with Dr. Kenneth Howell. Uh, we're looking at Romans chapter 2, verse 25, through Romans chapter 3, verses 8. And uh, Ken, I think what I'll do is we're gonna, I'm going to break that into halves about, because it seems to me that there's a slightly, though the whole, the whole section deals with one issue. Um, and as I mentioned before the break, part of it is Jewish and Gentile Christians not only living together and come to agree and coming to understand which of the, what are their past they can bring with them, but there's also some struggles there uh, that maybe are more inward in that people are wondering themselves whether uh, their their faith is working for them and what's missing, uh, and they're looking at you know, the Gentile former Gentiles looking at the former Jews and back and forth. Um, let me read the passage, Ken, and then I'd love for you to jump right in with it, if you would. Uh, I'll read just 25 through chapter 3, verse 2, and the audience can hear the context. Circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then those who are physically uncircumcised but keep the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For he is not a real Jew who is one outwardly, nor is true circumcision something external and physical. He is a Jew who is one inwardly. And real circumcision is a matter of the heart, spiritual and not literal. His praise is not from men, but from God. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews are entrusted with the oracles of God. Now, Ken, uh, it's maybe easier to see the flow of his logic and he's using, he truly is using philosophical logic here in, in developing his statement, but maybe hearing it sounded confusing to the audience, so maybe summarize what, what Paul's getting at in this short section. Well, if we remember what we talked about last week in uh, the, the previous verses of, you know, the beginning of chapter 2 through verse 24, that's where Paul was beginning to compare Jew and Gentile. 
And he was making uh, several points. One is that the Jew does, the things are first to the Jew. That was whom God revealed himself to and then to the Gentile. But he says there's also a sense of equality between Jew and Gentile in this sense that even though the Jew was privileged to receive the oracles of God, to receive God speaking to them, revealing himself to them, still when it comes to the question of sin, which is ultimately what separates us from God, the Jew and Gentile are basically on the same, uh, on the same page. They're on, they're on the same uh, platform because sin is what separates us from God, and the Jew, though being privileged, is not without sin. Now, what he does say, however, in verse 12, if you remember, was that the judgment of God uh, is upon those that don't have the law is different than those that do have the law. That is, that according to what we know from God, uh, that's what we'll be judged by. Now, the, the question then, we talked about the logic. You can see sort of the force of where he's going here. Then the question comes, well, so what's the point of being a Jew? If I'm just as condemned as the Gentile, I mean, and if we flip this into the modern context, we'd say, you know, what's the point of being a Catholic? I mean, right? Yeah. What's the advantage of being a Catholic? Um, In fact, well, Ken, I, I, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, that's right. Go ahead, please. I was going to say that by replacing the words in these verses with baptism and Christian, I really think yeah. brings it to the modern day to see what he's getting at, that the, his hearers would have known exactly what yeah. he's talking about. But because we're yeah. not used to using circumcision or other things today, it's not an issue anymore, uh, whether you're circumcised yeah. or uncircumcised. But if but hear what, let me read the, just the first part of this, but replacing a few words. Okay. Baptism indeed is a value if you obey the teachings of the church. But if you break the teachings, your baptism becomes unbaptism. So if a man who is unbaptized keeps the precepts of the church, will not his unbaptism be regarded as baptism? Then those who are physically unbaptized but keep the teachings of the church, teachings of God, will condemn you who have the written teachings and baptism but break the teachings. For he is not a real Christian who is one outwardly, nor is true baptism something external and physical. He is a Christian who is one inwardly. And real baptism is a matter of the heart, spiritual and not literal. His praise is not for men, but from God. Then what advantage has the Christian? And what is the value of baptism? Much in every way, to begin with, the Christians are entrusted with the oracles of God. I mean, Ken, let me ask you this. Is that a justifiable substitution? Oh, yeah, I think I think it is. And it's justifiable on the basis of redemptive history, salvation history. In other words, there's the Old Testament, the structure of things, Jew first and Gentile. And in the New Testament, it's the church, which becomes the new Israel. And so the members of the church are those who are brought into it. There's also another justification, that is, we don't have time to go into it right now, but there is a substitution for, of baptism for circumcision as we move into the new covenant. I'll just give one, one example of that. Here's when Peter's preaching on the day of Pentecost, you remember? 
um, in Acts chapter 2. And the people say, well, what must we do to be saved? Now, these are Jews from all over the world. They're circumcised. They're come to Jerusalem, and he's preaching and says, well, then they say, well, what must we do to be saved? He says, be baptized. Repent and be baptized, each one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. In other words, what you need now to do as Jews is to enter into this new covenant through baptism. And by the way, he goes on, verse 20 and 39, to say that this promise is not just for you, but it's for your children, which is a continuation of infant baptism as there was infant circumcision in the Old Testament. Now, the question that's behind this verse in chapter uh, chapter 2 that you've read here, Forrest Marcus, is the question of whether that circumcision of the Old Covenant and baptism has any validity and, and what what is that validity, especially if you don't? What it clearly seems to suggest is if we think of someone, well, think of Isaac or think of any boy that was, bapt, that was circumcised, what was their obligation? Their obligation was to learn the Torah. And then by the time they were 12 years old, to have their bar mitzvah and to become a proclaimed a man of the law, a Jewish man, and to take on your responsibilities as a man in the community of Israel. So being circumcised wasn't enough. The point of circumcision was to lead you to be a good, obedient uh, child of God in the people of Israel or the Jews. And analogously, the same today for the Christian. Yeah, we see the, the, okay, so a young man or woman who's baptized, now the parents have the obligation to help that young person know the faith so that they right. can live it, and then later when they are of age, at least in the Western Church, they are mm-hmm. confirmed, and that mm-hmm. they are to confirm what that baptism did and means and the teachings of the Church, and then they are on their own to live that out. We see the parallel mm-hmm. with circumcision. One of the biggest differences the Church came to realize very early is that this sacramental blessing was more than a figure, whereas mm-hmm. in, it was more than mere ob- obeying a ritual like circumcision would have been. And there's right. a long history to even why they were circumcised. You know, Abraham and, and, uh, and Moses modeling the disobedience of, the, of God's people in e- Egypt. So there's a long connection with circumcision there. But the point was that baptism is more than a symbol or completing a ritual, is that baptism uh, changes a person. A person Mm -hmm. is a new creation, Scripture says. That's where Jesus says you're born again, John chapter 3. The old is Mm -hmm. gone, the new has come, in 2 Corinthians 5, 17. You are now in Christ. The Holy Spirit has entered in. Uh, Original sin has been washed away. And so you are a different person and in Christ. Uh, 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 you are a, uh, uh, here I am, a a parsley farmer, and I'm not, a a branch has been grafted on. You're a grafted on branch to the vine of Christ. Um, And that you're called to live that out. And now if you bring that, you know, I, I have here before me Psalm chapter 50, where God is saying, hey, I do not reprieve you for your sacrifices, your burnt offerings, continue before me. 
but verse 14, offer to God the sacrifice of thanksgiving. It's always been the case that God has said your external acts do not carry meaning unless what's going on in your heart matches. That's the key. As he says here, it's a matter of the heart, spiritual, not literal. And that, I believe, Ken, is why the, the church, especially over the last hundred years, has grown to appreciate uh, the the depth and meaning of baptism of desire. You know, behind this passage is the foundation for the church's belief in baptism of desire. People who are not baptized, but if they knew they would be baptized, but they don't know, so out of their love of Christ, live out the faith, they have been baptized, though not mm-hmm. physically, but in their heart. Yeah. Yeah, because and that and that that's presupposes that baptism does indeed convey grace, but God, God has chosen to use the physical sacraments, but He's not limited to those sacraments because He's He's um, omnipotent. He can't be limited by physical things, and so God can infuse grace into a person's heart, even though that person hasn't gone through this sacramental process. Now you know there's two there's two dangers here that we or two extremes that we need to be sure that we um, that we avoid. One is the pure externalism. Okay, I've been circumcised, Jew. I've been baptized, Christian. Therefore, I'm saved, and that's all there is to it. Uh, Paul has a word about that, by the way, in First Corinthians, in a parallel passage to this one, in First Corinthians seven nineteen. He's talking about whether you should be circumcised if you are a Gentile. And that's kind of the question that you brought up earlier. Um, these Gentiles in Corinth are asking the question, well, maybe I ought to be circumcised. And Paul says in chapter 7, verse 18 of 1 Corinthians, well, if a man is called in an uncircumcised state, don't let he doesn't have to be circumcised. And then he gives a reason. For circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing but the keeping of the law of God into the keeping of the commandments of God. That's what the telos, that was the purpose of being circumcised, was to keep the law of God. So that if a man who's unbaptized is living as a baptized man, should live, well then in a sense, he gets the grace of the baptism. So there's that danger. The other danger is the danger where people might take these words of Paul in this end of chapter 2 and push them a little too far. And that is by that I mean where they deny that there's any meaning or validity to circumcision or to baptism. But you'll notice that in the case of Paul talking about circumcision here, his whole argument would fail if circumcision meant nothing. What he's saying is he's making a distinction between the validity of circumcision and the uh, application or effect of circumcision. The validity of circumcision, when a man was circumcised, he was a Jew. He didn't cease to be a Jew because he was unfaithful Jew. In fact, he says up in earlier in chapter 2, verse 12, that he's judged with the law because he is a Jew. In the same way, the baptism, the baptism for the Christian as well. Let me comment on that, Ken, because you're being a, a, a Greek scholar of the early church fathers. In history, this is one of the reasons why many Christians have denied the the sacrificial aspect of the Lord's Supper and the Eucharist, because they look to the Old Testament and look at the passage like I quoted, where on the one hand, God is kind of criticizing for their sacraments and causing them 
calling them instead to a heart of thanksgiving. And they interpret that as God uh, either or, getting rid of sacrifices instead for a heart of thanksgiving. And so they would look at uh, our Lord giving his body and blood in the Eucharist, but they deny that there's any continuity of sacrifice yeah. that was done away with. Now what's left is what's in your heart. And that you're saying that's the extreme. So that sacri- any idea that sacraments uh, themselves have any power or that the Eucharist is a sacrifice is an uh, unwarranted continuation of the Old Testament because, no, what really matters and what only matters is what's going on in your heart. And as a result of that, yeah. they, they miss the continuity of the early church yeah. fathers of the sacrifice yeah. of the cross yeah. and the Eucharist. And it's very clear from the early church fathers. I was just translating yesterday uh, St. John Chrysostom again. And and also, it, this is in the Western Church. It's in Hilary of Poitiers. It's in St. Ambrose. It's in St. Cyprian. And the idea of the Eucharist as the sacrifice, and not just a sacrifice, it's the same sacrifice as the sacrifice that was of the cross. But it's always possible because of bad Christians who live badly to say that their Christianity doesn't mean anything. But it's precisely only because it does mean something that we can say they're living badly. That's the standard <laughs> against which we're judging whether they're living uh, well or, or not living well. In other words, the, the, the sacraments in the New Covenant and the pointers of the sacraments in the Old, like circumcision and, and Passover and all of that, all those things are the external forms that had an internal meaning. What Paul is criticizing is the Jew who never lived out the internal meaning, which is exactly what we should be very concerned about as Catholics, that we live out the inner meaning of what those sacraments mean, objectively speaking. And once again, why we do need the church so that we have the correct meaning. We aren't just trying to decide for ourselves independently in our private interpretation of Scripture of what it means to live out our Christian faith. And that's why we have so many different confusing ideas. Ken, we've got about eight minutes left, so I'd like to introduce this next section. Let me read this for the audience, and then you jump in uh, at least to give some reflection, because Paul, on the one hand, is the, the same flow of ideas, but there's a slightly different point in verses chapter 3, verses 3 through 8. Paul writes, what if some were unfaithful? And he's, he, at this point, he's meeting the Jews. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though every man be false, as it is written, that thou mayest be justified in thy words and prevail when thou art judged. But if our wickedness serves to show the justice of God, what shall we say? That God is unjust to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way, Paul says. By no means, for then how could God judge the world? But if through my falsehood God's truthfulness abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. Mm. Now once again, we have logic here. 
Paul's yep, making logic if-then statements. He's moving back and forth, so it can be a bit confusing when we're, when we're hearing it. But he has a point. Yeah. Yeah, he makes, a, he makes a, a two points that are really important here. One is, can the actions of human beings in any way change God? And his answer to that is no, they cannot. In other words, God is who he is, or as the phrase that people like to use today, it is what it is, right? <laughs> God is what he is, and our, our actions or lack of goodness cannot change God at all. And, that, and that's what he seems to be saying there in verse 30, 33. That is, if, if we're unfaithful, will our unfaithfulness somehow impinge and make God, will it nullify God's faithfulness? By the way, Paul is going to return to this very question in chapter 9. When we get through, when we get to chapter 9, we're going to see him asking the question, well, the Jews didn't accept the Messiah when he came into the world. Does that nullify that, that either Jesus is Messiah or does it nullify that? Has God rejected the Jews, as he's going to ask in chapter 11, because the Jews rejected God? That is, they rejected the Messiah. Does that mean that God rejected them? And his answer is unqualified, no. So he's saying the same thing here. Disobedience on our part can't change God in any way, shape, or form. Ken, does that have the same parallel with the fact that throughout history, there have been many people that have looked at bad Christians and therefore said Christianity must not be true? Yeah, you know, this is, it it really, I'm surprised at how many people kind of fall for that. You know, that is, he's a bad leader, you know. I mean, even, for example, if you have a bad president and he espouses certain principles and if he fails to live up to those principles, that doesn't mean the principles that he's espousing are wrong. All right. Now, uh, but but so people confusing the principles with the person very often. And what we have to do is to go back to the to the question of principle. Even though math math teachers make math mistakes, that doesn't mean that right. mathematics is based on the math teacher, right? Many people have misunderstandings about the Catholic Church, have denied the Catholic Church, rejected the Catholic Church, and they point fingers at bad popes and bad bishops and bad Catholics or what the conquistadors did or what the yeah. people in the Inquisition did and all that. But they... They don't take the time to say, well, wait a second, was that the teaching of the church? Many people try and point that the Catholic Church must have supported slavery during the 16th, 17th, and 18th, and 19th century. Well, the truth is if they look at the data, they would see the church was always against slavery, was always preaching against slavery. Absolutely. And those Catholics uh, that were practicing in the practice of slavery were going against the church and doing that because the church roundly condemned they practice the slave trade. All right, Ken, you said you had a second point you wanted to pull from this. Well, I think, I think as we transition to verses 5 and following, what you're seeing there is the question, okay, I'm following you, Paul. I, I'm seeing your logic here. And that is that my disobedience, my sin, is actually redounding to the glory of God. So I'll just sin more. Right? He comes. This is what he says in chapter 6. In other words, uh, in chapter 6, when he's talking about justification after chapter 5, well, then... He asked the question in chapter 6, well, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? He's asking a similar question here. If if my obedience or my disobedience uh, 
redounds to the glory of God, well, then I, how can God judge me? Because he's getting more glory through it. And he asks the question explicitly in verse 6, how can judge God judge the world if, if this is true? Well, what he's saying is his question is, is based upon the idea that, no, God remains just. My, my lack of obedience is a way in which God turns to his own glory by showing the contrast between my sin and his goodness, his righteousness. He didn't change somehow just because I sinned against him. And so what, his judgment is still valid. But what, what, what becomes, um, as it were, the, the injury to the church, the injury to the people of God, is what it says in verse 8. When people blaspheme God, because of the bad lives of Catholics, and I mean, we we we're living, we've lived this through this the priest scandal about homo, homo um, pedophilia and all of that stuff. I mean, you know, people despise us because because of these bad things that people have done. It is perhaps worth pointing out, however, that in this text we need to distinguish, as we have in the past, between hypocrisy and being a sinner. Being a hypocrite and being a sinner are not the same thing. What Paul is condemning in chapter 2 at the end is hypocrisy. That is the pretension that we're okay with God when we're not. But but the Catholic should always be in a position of humility to say, no, I'm a sinner too. I need God's grace just as much as the unbeliever does. You know, uh, the scriptures teach, the church teaches, spiritual writers have taught forever that one of the main ways we grow in holiness is through suffering. Suffering is yes, a means yeah. to grow in holiness. Yeah. And so, Ken, if I want you to grow in holiness, the best way I can do that is to make you suffer. <laughs> yeah. Turn the screws in to make me suffer even more. Yeah, there's a, that's a good example of, of not, not arriving at the right conclusion. Yeah. We should relieve suffering whenever we possibly can. Yeah, so we don't do evil time. that grace more abound just because God gives grace to help us c- yeah. combat evil. No, yeah, we don't exactly. cause suffering, but we do everything we can out of love and humility and care to help people uh, to relieve suffering, but Absolutely. at the same time recognizing that sometimes suffering comes as a gift. Even the mystery that sometimes evil is in our lives and somehow in the mystery of God's plan, it's there, but it's called to turn us to God. Not, Let's talk about that next week. That's great. Yeah. All right. Yeah. We'll pick uh, on that. Thanks again, Ken, for joining us on uh, on this study today. And all of you, thank you for joining us. Or again, we'd love to hear from you. I hope this discussion that we have each week is an encouragement to you. Our goal, uh, which is kind of the model of our of our work, is that to become through through being deep in scripture and deep in history, we become deep in Christ. And that means being deep in the whole context of our faith. Listen, God bless you. See you again next week.